0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and
1: welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty, program of Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lafferty.
0: Morning, everybody. And
1: myself, Chris Gafferty. Morning, and, uh, are, you, are,
0: you, are you going to start? Or?
1: Well, I might as well Seeing you seem to be putting things away and no, no. making crunching noises.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm making crunching noises, yeah, that's for
1: sure. Well, uh, uh, as you probably know, uh, Malcolm Turnbull
0: uh, pulled back over the weekend. Um, yes, they're all on. Just getting the volumes right here. Sorry. That's OK. Yeah,
1: I, I think uh, Mr Turnbull okay. pulled back from any move by the the Liberal Party government to raise the rate of the GST. Memming Turnbull is a former Goldman Sachs investment banker uh, that um, he remained to be convinced or persuaded. Well, that, of course, there's nothing to do with persuasion. Lifting the GST from 10% to 15% is seen as vital by corporate circles because it's the most rapid means of shifting more of the tax burden onto the working class by transferring most of the estimated $46 billion in extra revenue to business and the wealthy via the comp- cuts to company and income tax rate. Now, remembering 38% of the big companies pay no tax at all, uh, b- b- pay no tax at all, uh, you wonder what difference would that would make. But nevertheless, this the lifting of the GST from 10 to 15% just pardon me one second, listeners. Yeah, I was just wondering why
0: this light's flashing here. OK, so... Uh, Turnbull faced pressure to rule out
1: changes to the tax from MPs, of course, both within the National Party and the Liberal Party, who feared losing their seats. Uh, Paul Kelly, the editor of The Australian, which is a very pro-Liberal party, Murtough. said said politics over policy as MP loses the taste for battle. The Australian Financial Review columnist Jennifer Hewitt warned Turnbull risks looking like a political leader without the courage of his convictions. Or worse, no convictions at all. The Business Council uh, has written Tax reform runs the risk of being the latest victim of Australia's dysfunctional political debate. I mean, Turnbull's been Prime Minister for five months And uh, the chorus of recriminations against Tony Abbott's leadership, which preceded his removal, developed at the same time as Australian capitalism is increasingly going into crisis. Mm -hmm. The collapse in major commodity exports, such as iron ore and coal, has led to a sharp decline in the Australian dollar, a slump in corporate tax revenue, and a blowout in the country's Current account and budget deficit. The corporations want smaller taxes, finance at the expense of the working class, of course, and industrial relations reform, which, of course, is just a euphemism for cutting wages and reducing working conditions. Under Abbott, the prospect for both of these had failed. I mean, the mass opposition to uh, to both these measures forced Abbott back onto the, the back foot and particularly Abbott who had decried the great big tax of the mining tax which wasn't a great big tax at all seemed perfectly happy, the Liberal Party seemed perfectly happy to institute a new great big tax of an extra 5% on everything I And mean, that's not a great big tax, I don't know what is uh, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote at the time Uh, that Australians will accept pain in return for gain if it's explained clearly. Oh, contraire. If it's explained clearly, most people will know that they are being ripped off to benefit the corporations. Five months later, Tuesday's editorial in the Australian Financial Review attacked Turnbull not only for his GST uh, retreat but his failure to address economic reform and reframe the industrial relations debate. Now, these are euphemisms left, right and centre. The voice of finance asserted that business was shocked, dismayed and puzzled, and complained that even if Turnbull won re-election, he may have no mandate to pursue reforms that sooner or later Australia would have to make. The editorial concluded, in the meantime, the question will be asked, What's the point of Mr Turnbull's government? A question we might ask as well, but we know what the point of it is. Such commentary underscores the crisis of the two major parties, Labour and Nibble. Both represent the Australian ruling class, but neither of them has been prepared to risk the backlash and electoral annihilation that will come if, if they actually implement what business and the financial circles want. That is, the working class aren't that stupid. They know when they are being asked to pay for everything at the same time as company taxes, which they barely pay, are going to be reduced even further. While the Greens backed Gillard government made draconian changes to eligibility for single parents and disability welfare, I mean, on the same day that they shifted a lot of single mothers. Uh, off the disability pension onto the dole, um, the government reduced funding for for long-term health and education. The budget deficit has continued to grow and tax cuts have failed to materialise. I mean, you may remember, the Liberals used to have a truck called the debt truck where they would write up the current state of Australia's foreign debt. Well, they don't do that anymore because for the obvious reason that it's gone up massively I'll since the Liberals came mm. to power. Yeah. On January the 28th, the Treasury Secretary, John Fraser, made an open political intervention into the D- GST debate, insisting that tax changes were not the solution and that the government needed to focus on slashing spending on, quote, and this is barefaced faced programs like aged care, disability care, and help for the unemployed and the sick. I mean, they are the obvious targets, aren't they? Not the rich. Fraser declared... We are far more at the mercy of international finance and economic pressures. Paul Keating, who for some reason some people regard as a hero, which mystifies me completely, this was a man along with Hawke who introduced the neo- uh, gender, neoliberal agenda into Australia. They privatised the Commonwealth Bank, which last year's profit was more than we sold it, we sold it for. Talk about a ripoff! He
0: came from the western suburbs. He left school in fourth form, and he went on to become prime minister. And I think for some of us, are uh, you me? Say for instance, you know, that's quite impressive. And so, yeah, people. <coughs> I think I think and, uh, his personality was popular with a lot of folk too. You know, well, it was, but, uh, pep- but his actual policies economically, that's right <coughs> weak, well, exactly. you? Know, it's easy to call popular popularity. Popular, popular,
1: popularity. <coughs> if you're on the side of the mongrels. I mean, mm. if you're on the side of big business, you'll get popular. Mm. You'll get popular in certain be. circumstances. The world's
0: best treasure. Well,
1: the world's best treasurer. But uh, Paul Keating denounced GST's consumption tax as, quote, a socialist tax? I mean, is this man entirely mad? He said, no, we've got to trim our spending and not accommodate more of it, even by more tax action. Paul Keating called the
0: GST...
1: A socialist tax.
0: Well, I don't understand this. No, I don't, know. I don't think he I'm did either. Sure the, the
1: Australian declared, without a GST rise, there's only one way to find billions of dollars needed to pay for useful income tax cuts.
0: Mm.
1: Useful income tax for the big business. Mm. That is doing what Costello and Keating have recommended and cutting expenditure. Mm. The Turnbull government's first budget in May and the pressures proposed by both the Coalition and Labor during the forthcoming election due by the end of the year, will be subject to close scrutiny in ruling circles. If both parties avoid committing to tens of billions in austerity cutbacks being demanded by the finance houses and the major corporation, it'll be taken as a sign that new and even more ruthless political mechanisms will be required to act in their interests. And unfortunately, the Greens don't seem to understand what this is about. I mean, they... Won't come out and definitely oppose all these things. I mean they're opposing mm. GST, mm. but they waver, mm. they waver. You've got to be quite clear this is a me by big business who are facing increasingly crisis, a crisis of capitalism, mm. not caused by the workers yeah, whose wages have remained virtually static mm. over the last uh, the last years. in America, the American working class today is worse off than it was in 1966. 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. they are worse off there, and that is only going to get worse. So that's, uh, that's the stage we're at. So we may have seen the back of the GST, but it means you're more likely to see real devastating cuts to education, health, welfare, old age, disability, and all the rest of it. Well,
0: I just think that Turnbull's saying he's not going to bring in, doesn't want to bring in the GST at the moment because he wants to remain Mr. Popularity, Mr. Nice Guy yes. until the election. Yes. You know, I think there's a fairly obvious thing going on there with Good Cop, Bad Cop with uh, Turnbull and Morrison, and he wants to play a good cop. He wants to get re elected. Yes. The bookies all think he's a. Hot favourite to get back well, in. when you uh, see short, so, you'd have to think. Yeah, we well, know Mouse personality, right? So, uh, and then you know, if, if they are elected, which it's expected they will be, uh, what then?
1: Well, that's right. Either massive, massive cuts, mm-hmm. or
0: they'll introduce the GST anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, he'll promise whatever now. They'll uh, promise, he promise that even will. more before the election, but we all know what happens to the. You know, before the election and after the well, election. Well, that's right. When that's the right. economy's gone down the gurgler and our things have changed now. Folks, that's right. When we said
1: no GST, the yeah. economy was somewhat better. Yes. Now it's in dire straits, yeah. and we're obliged. We hate doing it. Mm. We're obliged to make you working-class people pay for our mm. company uh, cutbacks. Mm. and uh,
0: But it's for the good of the country. Oh, it's good of the country. Oh, and yeah, like what's good for the business is yeah. good for what's you. What's good for the tiny handful at the top is good for the that's rest. Right. What's good for
1: now. the 0.1% is mm. fabulous for you. Mm. So
0: this government has uh, appointed a new sex discrimination commissioner, and I just, I just heard about it on ABC and I quickly Googled and I saw the picture of uh, Michaela Cash, who mm. we were speaking about last week, and uh, who's the other, and George Brandis, the Attorney General. Michaela Cash was jumping through all skits. She was like, very excited at the appointment of the new Sex Discrimination Commissioner and George Brandis. So you've got to wonder about this new Sex Discrimination well, Minister. You think but, the last um,
1: thing they'll be interested in is sex discrimination.
0: Well, yeah, you know, and the, the new Sex Discrimination Minister is Kate Jenkins. Kate Jenkins is a lawyer. Another, right, right. Well, like, like most as of as them. If Another, like another lawyer, like most of them. And I just had a quick Google to look at the seven... Sex Discrimination minist- uh, Commissioners Australia's had since 1984, seven mm. of them, white, middle-class women, every single one. of <laughs> them. So the anti-discrimination policy, I don't know. If right, know. right, right, right. Am I being cynical? No. <laughs> I, tell you I, think I think I'll not. I'm maybe learning from you, but I, I, I wouldn't want to be cynical about it. No, but. no, no, no. Um, I, I got this email during a week from... It's an organisation called I U F U I T A I U L. It's a union organisation. The send messages um, are just alerting people to ongoing uh, industrial action by workers around the world. And over 500 workers in the Moroccan city of Agadir have been on strike since March 2015. At Doha. It's not the city of Doha, it's a company, DOHA. Now DOHA is a subsidiary of the large B I C H A group which cans fish. These workers, over 90% of these workers are female, but these are working class women. They work in the canning plant which exports the fish worldwide. The company, with the help of compliant legal and political authorities, is seeking to dissolve the trade unions, just a new trade union, which represents these workers. They are also attempting to dismiss striking unionists, criminalise them and punish and confiscate the union leaders' home. So basically the Mitra company is attempting to do what bosses here in the West also do, but in Morocco at the present they can do it with even more severity. Workers at the Agadir Doha plant formed a branch of the CDT trade union back in 2011. After a 20 day strike, local authorities, under pressure from the popular movement sweeping the North African region, urged the company to recognize the union. So, this is back in 2011, the Arab Spring. Yes, that's right. And there was a little glimmer of light there, and it was a little bit more, um, uh, you know, people. People's rights were being recognised, because they were having to be, for that brief moment. However, beginning in 2014, things took a turn for the worse. Management moved to have the union dissolved, imposed its own workplace delegates, and stepped up pressure on the workers. This went to the ridiculous extent of denying them paid toilet breaks. So they go to the toilet, get docked. Yes, On March 6, 2015, management dismissed 51 workers, including 25 members of the CDT union. This provoked a strike, and the strike is still going today. The company initially retaliated by bringing in 500 new workers, maybe referred to as scabs, in breach of the Labour Code. They then demanded punitive financial damage against the 51 active union members for punitive financial damages. And I, well, what that was was loss of profit. Oh yeah, of course, of yeah, course, financial damages. <laughs> That's is, this is the bottom line. They also claim the equivalent. Get this in Morocco, the equivalent of three hundred thousand Australian dollars in damages from one of the union leaders, uh, Ramon Abdella. Since Abdella cannot pay the fine, the Moroccan equivalent of our arbitration commission has ordered what it calls the precautionary confiscation of his, his apartment, which he has a mortgage on. The union has held solidarity sit-ins and protest marches as Abdella's case has gone through the appeals process. And uh, the, unfortunately, the court at, at this stage has upheld the confiscatory penalty. So the, um, this, whole, this whole story, it's been going on since 2011, has reached a serious and an urgent moment. That's why the call has been put up. I think it is important to put this particular dispute into its historical context. Some people have criticized the movement referred to as the Arab Spring. But in this instance of these particular workers, it seems that the events of 2011 onwards uh, did lead to, you know, back in 2011, did lead to at least some government concession to workers' demands Mm -hmm. in Morocco. It is estimated that the Arab Spring had direct effects on at least 20 countries all across North Africa and the Middle East. The Arab Spring in Morocco was estimated to date from February 2011 to March 2012. During this period, thousands rallied in Moroccan cities calling for political reform and a new constitution curbing the uh, powers of the King Mohammed VI. In In July 2011, the King... He had to reform ever so slightly. And the king won a landslide victory in a referendum which was forced on him, uh, a referendum to have a reform constitution uh, to placate the Arab Spring protests, the very, very smallest of uh, reforms. So, for a while, the monarchy and the establishment were able to quell the uprising. However, in 2012, rallies led by the trade union movement – these people aren't stupid mm. – were held to protest the government, failing to deliver on even these very modest reforms. Yet again, we see that a ruling class will never give up power willingly. It would only reform as little as it needs to in order to maintain power – the Moroccan workers have flexed their muscles. They're continuing to, actually, even though there's a pr- lot of pressure on. And they need to be emboldened to keep up the fight as they seem to be facing a serious establishment reaction at this time. Mm-hmm. I think it's just important to sort of like, you know, when we look at the Arab Spring, this is a little sto- a story within that bigger story. <coughs> Which is not given publicity
1: out here. I yeah, mean, very, very little. in fact, much of the effect of the Arab Spring wasn't really reported here. I yeah. mean... We knew about the man committing suicide yeah. in Tunisia and the mass outbreak that that brought. Mm-hmm. And in Egypt, where Mubarak, a long-time American ally,
0: was deposed. Well, King Mohammed is obviously looking at Gaddafi getting deposed, and Mubarak getting deposed. He's maybe thinking back to the 70s and Shah Iran getting deposed. And he thinks I could be next. yeah, i better give them a few cro." Oh, absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah. of course they do and, and he does and uh, but as soon as, as, as they can get the, the momentum back,
1: they will oh of course back will come Of course back that now. is why you when you start a revolution, you don't stop mm. you don't stop until your enemy is non-existent till mm. you've completely and utterly defeated them, expecting them to become decent, expecting them to read a, a compromise is folly because your interests and theirs are fundamentally contradicting. That's why this, That's why nationalism is such a curse on the working class, mm. because it says to us, you have more in common with your bosses, because you're both Australian. Well, mm-hmm. in Australia, that's not often the case. But even when they are Australian, that's no basis. The fact that we're born in the same place, they're exploiters and you're the exploited. Mm. And therefore, it's as, as good that as you bring out something like that, because we have more in common with those... Workers in Morocco than we
0: do with our own bosses. Absolutely, and I don't know how much power King Abdullah. So excited! I don't even know his name. King Mohammed VI has in Morocco, but the very fact that the the referendum was actually something that he proposed, which has not come from Mm -hmm. him originally, but he has to propose it, suggests that he's quite powerful. The well, yes, the monarchy is quite powerful. Oh, Uh,
1: clearly, and more powerful than in. Anglo you know? countries, yeah. Yeah, oh
0: yeah, definitely, yeah, of oh, any Western country, yeah. So just like the authorities in Morocco, just to go into another subject, the Catholic Church is also also an institution which is very resistant to change. The Vatican, <laughs> very resistant. The Vatican <laughs> yeah. has a long history of cracking down hard on dissent, and only changes very slightly when it sees no other option. This has become once again obvious over the past few years in regards to the child sex scandal, which has exposed some of the church's worst practices. Now, I just think it's, this, this is something else. It's
1: personified
0: by George Pell. I, I, I might be mentioning him. Yes. Uh, and I think the whole thing really here, and this goes back to I think it's the 13th or the 14th century when the church, before then they got married and then 20, that's right. 12th, 13th century, right. century and other uh, denominations they, well, get now, uh, so, they, they introduced uh, to keep the ch- land in the church's that's hands, right. Yeah, so yeah. the
1: priests wouldn't bequeath their land and to the the their bloody children. women and kids nicking yeah, <laughs> <that's right. laughs> the church's that's land right. Right.
0: Okay. so yeah, it, I, th- I think it's obvious when we do study the church's history that the policy of not allowing priests to marry has played its part in these activities I'm not going to go and on and the era
1: that. we refer to normally as the Dark Ages mm. which dates really from the fall of Rome for basically the next 600 years years were the years in which the church was utterly dominant mm-hmm. so it's quite appropriate that backwardness was enshrined at exactly the point when religion triumphed. Mm.
0: and Well, no, it's not just uh, that church, but that's true. The, the fact is that priestly celibacy is not so much based on theological principles, but on the church's desire, as we were saying before, to keep its vast properties firmly under its control. Allowing priests to marry would lead to wives and children making demands on the world's, I believe, biggest property owner which is yes. the Catholic... I've heard yes. that before, yes.
1: anyway. That was certainly the biggest landowner under feudalism.
0: It's, uh, and they kept slaves massive. as well. Yeah, yeah but there, there were the, a lot of the monarchs, a lot of the kings and queens, they... Now, their land was owned by um, the the church in Rome. This is a big part of the reason for Anglicanism. Mm, mm, mm. The Church of England is established because well, he wants for, to get the land. That's, well, not, Henry, that's they... not theology. No, 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 <laughs> yeah, no. You know, no. Oh, no, no. That's a land grab. No, many, the, a lot of the
1: people became Protestants because it was a way to get hold of church land. And even to the point where the people went in, there were stripping the roofs of the churches of lead and precious metals.
0: Yeah, but that's also because they don't like the wash-up of... Uh, of, of, of icons worship uh, iconoclasm. They were against iconoclasm. Well, yes, but they also so didn't. Mind, right they on. didn't mind the gold that they picked Melted up, melt it down. Yeah, okay. But it's such a cynic. <laughs> the most senior Australian Catholic. The most senior Australian Catholic is Cardinal George Pell. Now, at present, George Pell is living and working in the Vatican, as hiding a, in the Vatican. Hang on, all right, <laughs> in the Vatican as a senior financial advisor. Pell was requested to give testimony before the Royal Commission into Child Abuse. He advised the commission that while well, he wanted to answer questions in this country, his daughters have provided him with what we would call a sick note advising that he should not travel. George Pell said, "My daughters have made it very clear that at the present time my health prevents me from undertaking long haul travel." Hang on. In response to who this, a West it. Australian doctor, West Australian doctor Richard Sally, has offered to provide what he what he calls a praetorian guard of personal physicians who would safely see the cardinal back from Rome and back home and he, and he would
1: pay the fares yeah and he will pay the fares so <laughs> oh,
0: nice. I mean, yeah, the prime minister could even cuz the prime minister is a convert from anglicanism to catholicism Turnbull is is he? Well, yeah he's i think he he, he was, a, was, he was originally a church of england but he uh, his wife was catholic well, i so know Abbott was kept catholic yeah that's a little difference between them in response, yeah, okay. So anyway, a Praetorian Guard to, uh, yeah, but he could offer his uh, prime ministerial plan for of George and could. with the, the medical workers he Oh, you could come by boat. Huh? Why can't well come? We can travel by boat. Yeah. What's wrong with a cruise
1: for the, <laughs> the Cardinal <laughs> Pell?
0: In making this generous offer, Doctor Sally said, "Quote: It seems to me that if George Pell is able to carry out his job as senior financial controller of the Catholic Church." Really important position, you, you think? think. Mm-hmm. Then he's probably fit enough to travel. Now, of course, it's easy to be cynical about the Cardinal's real reasons for being unable to front the Royal Commission in person. He has offered to testify via video link, and it may be that he is genuinely sync. I mean, I mm. will no, just hang on that. However, when it comes to the whole child sex story within the church, very often the church's senior men have resorted to simply running away Mm -hmm. when faced with their accusers. Many of the priests, and I won't name them, but we all know, many of the priests who have been found guilty of the worst uh, sex crimes were simply moved from parish to parish when they were named. Often, they were just whisked off to the Vatican by their bosses uh, where they were protected from investigation. The Vatican being a sovereign state, which wields enormous power, and if we go back to I think, what's, you know, the Concordat between Mussolini and the Vatican in 1929, it gave the Vatican a lot of power mm. uh, over uh, theological affairs, over their own affairs, as long as they kept out of the state mm-hmm. power. And, and and Mussolini's agreement there is that, yeah, you know, and I'll keep out of your. Affairs. They have an awful lot of power, you know, that people can run away to the Vatican and he cannot be touched.
1: No, that's right.
0: You know? So, um, yeah, this could be what he's doing. Joseph Ratzinger, also known as Pope Benedict XVI, he broke all papal tradition when he retired. I mean, back uh, three years ago in February 2013, popes don't retire any more than kings and queens retire. At the time, the pope said he had a Lack of strength of mind and body. So he's given it up. Yeah. Many cynics believe he too was simply running away from ch- facing the child sex allegations. For instance, and this does not get broadcast very widely, but in 2005, uh, the Pope, Benedict, was personally accused in a lawsuit of covering up a child molestation case in Texas. His response was to obtain immunity from prosecution simply because he is the head of state of the Holy See. Yes, Simple yes. As that. The U.S. Department of State, right, it's in their country, it's in Texas, the U.S. Department of State recognised and allowed the immunity of Pope Benedict XVI from this suit. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Yes, yes. It would appear that a pope is in fact above U.S. law. Probably any law. Sure, sure. Well, they're, uh, they're God's representatives. You forget oh, that, John. But, but this is really—it's uh, very serious stuff, you know. And I'd, I'd, i just wonder if, if it's just the Pope or if it's the cardinals, and they're the next—you know—they're the next, you know, the next on this pyramid. To me,
1: it's a criminal organization yeah. from beginning to
0: end. I think it, it, we can look at it as a business. But as for Pale, because I don't want to prejudge, as for Pale, whether in person or by video link, or whether it's before his maker. He can run away forever. He does need to answer some very hard questions. Yeah, I forget about the maker business, but there you are. Well, just in the one minute
1: we've got before we ask you to call up, um, we've seen the, the, the situation with the refugees. Um, tens of th- and what's interesting is that tens of thousands of people have come out to protest about the way we're treating these refugees, which is amazing given the years of refugee bashing we've seen in Australia. Uh, I mean, the the press has worked overtime to demonise refugees and yet thousands of people coming out in support of the refugees. I mean, it's pretty hard to understand why we will now accept some refugees from Syria but not the ones we've put in the concentration camps of Manus and Nauru. But the government is treating the refugee question not as a human humanitarian crisis, but as a security issue. And they have used that as a way of whipping up prejudice and fear about the the refugees, many of whom are Muslims. And the other point about it is that why they're refugees is because governments that we have supported have gone in and wrecked their societies.
0: No war. Very, very few refugees. No you know, exactly the history of Australia. You know the post World War Two was refugees from Greece, from Italy, from Yugoslavia. Yes, exactly. And then you've got a bit further on refugees from Vietnam. But then we, it's are from well, we are responsible.
1: We are responsible for most of these wars hmm. in the in the Middle East. We've certainly given our name to Iraq, Libya, and and the punishing of Syria. And we express horror when these people, as a result of our activities, want to. <laughs> want to people, escape the bombing?
0: People don't just up and leave everything, their families, their culture, everything they've known. It's, on not, it's not taken. They don't right. just. You, you oh, say, gee, oh, I think so. I'll go to the other side right of the I think we'll go to. You know? What's this place? Australia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're exactly. doing it tough. Exactly. They, need, they want a better life.
1: Exactly. So the idea of greedy, queue jumping, unworthy refugees is the image being put out. And it's being whipped up by the government. And this has allowed people like the Australian parrot. To, uh, Patriots and other essentially mad yeah, about, far right people yeah. to to have a presence and to be given, you know, they're on they're all over the web the Australian patriots. And there's a, they're only a, a half a dozen, look like half a dozen of thugs, but they have been given five. A legitimacy.
0: Not quite half a dozen. No,
1: okay, five. But they're being given a legitimacy by, by way of the fact that both Labour and Liberal have demonised the refugees and uh, have refused to act in a humanitarian way. People, mm. it's 10.32. Your chance to ring up on any topic, whether we've talked about it or not. The number to ring is nine four one nine zero one double five nine four one nine zero one double five. Any topic, whether we've talked a- about it
0: or not. Okay, so any topic, yeah, and... Um, just like some round, yeah? Yes, I was I going can. to... Yes, I mean, I kind of Johnny, good, but... Johnny is... No, uh... no, nah, nah, I'm, I'm
1: learning. I'm He's learning. learning. He's I'm,
0: did... I'm going to be, I'm, He's doing great. I'm going to be really great uh, come <laughs> next week, because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have extra training during the week. But, uh... So uh, I'm going to be really good at it next week, I tell you. All
1: right, uh, so... Uh...
0: Speaking about meeting your maker, um, you, you heard about the self-made man? The um... self-made man, and he worships his maker. Who's this? The self-made man. Who's the self-made man? The self-made man worships his maker. You haven't heard that one? No, no. What's it mean? It doesn't... All right. Think about it later. The other
1: thing is, while we've got a second, there's a a, a demonstration that's going to happen in March. And as you probably know, Australia is essentially cheating the Timorese out of much of the oil and gas in the Timor Sea. And uh, Australia included having... Australia included uh, Alexander Downer, supported a spy going there to undermine the Timorese case. Now, we think, and a lot of people think, this should be renegotiated. Timor is one of the poorest countries in the world, but the Australian government's not been above essentially stealing their oil and gas. And this started, of course, with the image of Gareth Evans drinking champagne with the Indonesian foreign minister. Ali
0: Ali Alatar. Ali Alatar.
1: So that demonstration will take place on March the 24th at 12:30 in Melbourne, at the 55 Collins Street, the Department of Foreign Affairs. We'll give you notice nearer that, but that's that's, this is a really unjust situation which we can hopefully do something about.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of Independent Community Radio Station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.